I'll be reading from Second Chronicles 12, 1 to, verses 1 to 8. Follow along on the screen behind me. When the rule of Rehoboam was established and he was strong, he abandoned the law of the Lord and all Israel with him. In the fifth year of King Rehoboam, because they had been unfaithful to the Lord, Shishak, king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem with 1,200 chariots and 60,000 horsemen. And the people were without number who came with him from Egypt, Libyans, Sukkim, and Ethiopians. And he took the fortified cities of Judah and came as far as Jerusalem. Then Shemaiah the prophet came to Rehoboam and to the princes of Judah, who had gathered at Jerusalem because of Shishak, and said to them, Thus says the Lord, You abandoned me, so I have abandoned you to the hand of Shishak. Then the princes of Israel and the king humbled themselves and said, The Lord is righteous. When the Lord saw that they had humbled themselves, the word of the Lord came to Shemaiah. They have humbled themselves. I will not destroy them, but I will grant them some deliverance. And my wrath shall not be poured out on Jerusalem by the hand of Shishak. Nevertheless, they shall be servants to him that they may know my service and the service of the kingdoms of the countries. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we approach you, and you are holy and righteous, and you do what is right always. And you are also a God who shows compassion, who knows our weaknesses, and who in Jesus Christ has forever made a way for us to know you and be in relationship with you. Lord, may your word be unshackled this morning to enlighten our minds to conform us to look more and more like Jesus. Lord, give us hearts and ears that really can hear. We need that from you, Holy Spirit. Pray all things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. The title of my sermon, which normally I don't really... Titles are like an afterthought for me usually, but this week is a little bit different. And the title of my sermon is God of Justice and God of Grace. And as I thought about that, I began to think, okay, where do we see justice and where do we see grace exemplified kind of in our culture, outside of the Bible? It's all throughout the Bible, but when we think of like, when you think of justice outside of the Bible, what do you think of? When you think of grace or mercy outside of the Bible, what do you think of? So I think justice is pretty easy. We think of the Justice Department, right? We think of courts and laws and picture of a judge in a, in a, in a courtroom uh, impartially deciding, you know, uh, innocence and guilt. You know, think of mercy or grace, you probably think of charities, mercy ministries, uh, soup kitchens or tutoring ministries. You think of Habitat for Humanity, an organization that builds homes uh, for people, which is a basic human need. But what's interesting, though, is, is, is the ways that justice and grace are exemplified in our culture, they're mutually exclusive. They're separate realms, and they can't, they can't overlap. So a judge can't be gracious 
for a judge to feel compassion for someone and decide to show mercy is for him to actually become unjust. It's to forsake justice. It's an arbitrary deciding, well, I feel bad for you. I'm going to let you off the hook. On the, on the same side, if, if charities or uh, mercy ministries began to show justice, that would often be pretty off-putting. If a soup kitchen decided, well, we're going to decide who is worthy, who's deserving to receive food today. We have institutions of justice, institutions of mercy, and they are very distinct and separate, and if you try to overlap them, it runs into problems. But here's the thing in, in God, in the being of God, we have justice and we have mercy together. That's why God is a God of justice, but he's also a God of grace. And conceptually, we may struggle to understand how can that be in the same person. And so what's interesting is that when God wants to explain how he is a God of justice and how he is a God of grace, he does not give us an argumentative essay or like a treatise, but he gives us a story. And in that story, he shows us how he is a God of justice and a God of grace. And so our, our outline this morning is going to be pretty simple. It's going to be God of justice and God of grace to a foolish son. And then second, God of justice and God of grace to a faithless son. And again, we'll be looking at chapters 10 to 12. So as with all this series, we're going to be moving fast. And uh, I'm not able to, there's a lot I'm not able to talk about. But I'm trying to pull out what I think is the overarching point and message of these three chapters. To give a quick recap, we've, we've seen the reigns of David and Solomon. They were ideal kings. I mean, the chronicler really treats them as ideal kings. I mean, he does not mention their various sins and weaknesses. He's just highlighting what they did well, and he's doing that not to be deceptive or because he didn't know about David's failings and Solomon's failings, but because he's laying out an ideal for for the returning exiles of what a true king, a godly king, one who comes from the line of David, what he should look like. And ultimately, because God is the one true author behind all of Scripture, is pointing forward to Jesus. So with David and Solomon, you get these ideal kings, idealized kings almost. But when we get to Rehoboam, who's the son of Solomon, it's like we've left the age of the gods, and now we are among the mere mortals. We've left the kind of idealized life of Solomon and David, and now we're getting to real life, where things are a lot more messy. And all of a sudden, where David and Solomon, the message is, they are positive examples. Be like them. Returning exiles, when you are looking for kings, They need to be like Solomon and David. Now it's, they're examples, but it's not always positive. There's negative examples. Don't be like them. And all of these are pointing to God's grace. As God chose himself to be both a God of justice and a God of grace who can use even crooked sticks to draw straight lines. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and open up to chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. And and if you have your Bible open, you probably see the heading right before this is Solomon's death. So Solomon has died, and here we get to a time of transition. If you remember when we looked at when Solomon became king, in the ancient world, the time of transition was a time of instability. They didn't have kind of constitutionally determined ways to transition power, and so when a king died, it could turn pretty ugly pretty quickly. This would have been a time of of anxiety among the people, of political uncertainty, of economic uncertainty, of religious uncertainty. And there's also, again, the uncertainty of what kind of king will this person be? Will he be one who's like Saul, who led the people away from God, who abandoned God? Or will he be like David and Solomon, who led the people to God? So there's a lot of uncertainty. 
And here we get to chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. Rehoboam, that's Solomon's son, went to Shechem, for all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. This is a coronation service. And as soon as Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard of it, for he was in Egypt, where he had fled from King Solomon, then Jeroboam returned from Egypt. There's a little note here that's not mentioned. Who is Jeroboam? Why is he in Egypt? Why do we care about him? And it's interesting, this is another one of those details that the chronicler doesn't mention about Solomon because he's creating an idealized picture of who Solomon was. But we see this story in 1 Kings. It's a little story here. I'm going to read it for you. It should be on the screen behind me. But in 1 Kings chapter 11, this is while Solomon is still king on the throne. It says, Then Ahijah, who, been, who was a prophet, laid hold of the new garment that was on him, and he tore it into 12 pieces. And he said to Jeroboam, Take for yourself 10 pieces. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I'm about to tear the kingdom from the hand of Solomon and will give you ten tribes. But you shall have one tribe. For the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, the city that I have chosen out of all of the tribes of Israel, because they have forsaken me and worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Chemosh, the god of Moab, Milcom, the god of the Ammonites, and they have not walked in my ways, doing what is right in my sight and keeping my statutes, and my rules as David his father did. And once Solomon finds out about Jeroboam, that God has promised Jeroboam, you're going you're to be the king, Solomon tries to kill him, so Jeroboam flees to Egypt. It's a detail that the chronicler doesn't mention. There are cracks in the kingdom, and all is not well as it seems when Rehoboam is ready to take the kingdom. And we're going to see more of these cracks as we continue on. So here Rehoboam comes. Jeroboam, Solomon has died, so he comes back from Egypt. And the people come to Rehoboam, to his coronation, in verse 3. And they sent and they called him, and Jeroboam and all Israel came and said to Rehoboam, Your father made our yoke heavy. Now therefore lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us, and we will serve you. And Rehoboam said to them, Come to me again in three days. And so the people went away. Solomon was a master builder. And that was kind of the, that was how kings measured their success. What could they build? Uh, and he built the temple, which was a wonder of the world. He built a palace. He built fortified cities. He built entire cities just to house his chariots. He was a master builder, an incredible administrator, an incredible leader. And had this very gilded kind of like the golden age of Israel. But what's interesting is when Solomon dies, we see that there were cracks in the foundation. And not all was well. And these building campaigns that Solomon had embarked on came at a cost. And so when Solomon dies, the people come to his son, and they say, the burden is too heavy. The taxation to build all these projects. Israelites were not supposed to be enforced into enslaved labor, but they might have been conscripted to be supervisors of some of these projects, and so there's a burden of labor on them. So they come to his son and say, this has been too much. You've got to make this easier. We're dying here. I'm going to summarize verses uh, 6 to 11. And so Solomon asked for three days to consult. He first talks to his father's advisors. These would have been the men that advised the most wise king that Israel ever had. And they tell him, be merciful, be humble, be gracious, and you'll preserve your kingdom and your people will serve you. Then he goes to his peers and they say, no, 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 no. If, if, if you blink, it's going to be a sign of weakness and you'll lose your kingdom. You need to bring down the hammer. You need to be harsh with them. And so Rehoboam, shows his inexperience, shows his foolishness, 
and he listens to his peers, and he comes back to the Israelites, and he tells them, you thought Solomon was tough. You ain't seen nothing yet. And the result of that we see in verse 16. And when all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king, what portion have we in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Each of you to your tents, O Israel. Look now to your own house, David. So all Israel went to their tents. And again in verse 19. And so Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. It's interesting that, again, just some of the other cracks that are, that are being revealed here. It's the northern tribes. Remember, Israel's 12 tribes. David and Solomon and Rehoboam come from the tribe of Judah. The tribe of Judah is not complaining. It's the other tribes that are saying the burden is too heavy. And so there potentially could have been the case that Solomon was exacting more taxation from the northern kingdoms than he was from his own tribe and showing favoritism and already beginning to kind of sow the seeds of discord that would lead to this division in the nation between the ten northern tribes and the two southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin. But here, because of Rehoboam's, Rehoboam's incredible foolishness, the kingdom splits and it never reunites. And the irony is that the wisest king that Israel ever produced had one of the most foolish sons. So theologically, I guess that's a story of what happens, but theologically, what's going on here? Because again, it's not just telling us interesting history, but it's telling us things about God. And what it's telling us is that God is a God of justice. God is, 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 is enacting punishment both on Israel's unfaithfulness, which we saw in that first Kings passage, that towards the end of Solomon's reign, the people of Israel are beginning to worship other gods and demonstrating unfaithfulness, but also against Rehoboam's own foolishness, that he, in his arrogance and his bravado and, and his just kind of foolishness, refuses to show mercy and refuses to lead well. And as a result, he loses his kingdom, or at least a good portion of it. This is a severe punishment. I mean, civil war, I've never lived through a civil war. Maybe you have. I, I, mean, I can't, I mean, maybe if you grew up overseas. But this isn't just like a civil war. This, this is more like a family feud. Because Israel, they all descended from the same 12 brothers. And so they would have been very, very distantly related. So it would have felt more like a really ugly family split. There would have been economic consequences. I mean, trade routes would have been disrupted. There would have been military consequences. The nation is now two. They're weaker more prone to, to other nations conquering them. And of course, there are going to be religious consequences, which we'll see. But the point is that God will do what is right. God is a God of justice. He will do what is right always, even when it comes with a cost to his own people. Israel doesn't get a free pass because they're God's people. It's not like God is going to bring down the hammer on the foreign nations when they sin, but Israel, he's going to kind of wink, wink, nudge, nudge, you're my people, it's okay. No, God is a God of justice, always. He will always do what is right, even when it comes at the cost of his own people. Now, it may be easy for us to think, well, this is an Old Testament thing. We're New Testament believers. We believe in salvation by grace. But we see this in the New Testament, too. In, 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 the, in the book of Acts, the story of Ananias and Sapphira, who are a wealthy couple, and they tell the church that they'd sold property and they're giving it all. And it's like, look at us, we're so generous. And it comes out that they'd actually kept part of it back. They lied to the church, they lied to God, and God killed them for it. These would have been believers who were, you know, saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. And yet God is a God of justice. He will do what is right, always. Sometimes we think, okay, true, as Christians, we are saved by grace. Absolutely. 
When we come before Christ, when we come before God, we can approach him because the blood of Christ covers us. But we can never let that, what's the word I'm looking for? We can never let that blind us into thinking that somehow God is now, a, you know, a teddy bear. Or they somehow domesticated. Well, God's going to forgive us. That's what he does. God is holy. We cannot domesticate the Alpha and the Omega. C.S. Lewis, in his, in his book, The Chronicles of Narnia, there's a character in the book who's a lion. His name's Aslan, and he's very clearly the Christ figure. And one of the characters, when they find out that Aslan is a lion, is a little bit nervous. And the character asks, well, is he safe? Just like you would ask, because lions are not safe. And the other character says, safe? Of course not. But he's good. This is one of the things being communicated to us, is God is a God of justice. is not safe. He is a God of holiness, a God of zealous fire, but he's good. God is a God of justice, even when it comes at the expense of his own people. But there's an addition we have to add to this, or we're getting the story horribly horribly incomplete. So he's also a God of grace. Yes, he's a God of justice, but he's also very much a God of grace. Look at chapter 11, verses 1 to 4. When Rehoboam came to Jerusalem, he assembled the house of Judah and Benjamin, 180,000 chosen warriors, to fight against Israel, to restore the kingdom of Rehoboam. But the word of the Lord came to Shemaiah, the man of God, Say to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, king of Judah, and to all Israel and Judah and Benjamin, Thus says the Lord, You shall not go up or fight against your relatives. Return every man to his home, for this thing is from me. So they listened to the word of the Lord, and they returned, and they did not go against Jeroboam. Here's Jeroboam, or sorry, Rehoboam. He's already committed great foolishness. He split the country, and he's about to throw gasoline on a fire. He's like, okay, I'm going to rally our troops. And there's a tragic irony. Kings were, 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 were intended to deliver Israel from other nations. They were supposed to be the saviors of Israel, which is why Christ, as the king, is, a, is one they're all pointing to as the ultimate deliverer. Here's a king who's supposed to deliver his people from evil and from harm, leading, he is now the one who is about to attack the people of Israel. There's incredible tragic irony in here. But God sends a prophet, Shemaiah, and he tells Rehoboam, no, this is not the northern kingdom's problem. This is from me. This is judgment. This is my punishment. Now, there's a crucial thing that it, it's somewhat subtle, but we, 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 we miss what's going on here. We miss the God of grace. We don't see this, which is that Rehoboam listens. And when Rehoboam listens, what he's, what he's affirming is, yes, God has done what is right. This is not the northern kingdom being out of line, but this is what I deserve for my foolishness, for my pride and my arrogance, my bravado, for what we as a nation, this is what we deserve for our unfaithfulness. And so it says in verse 4 again, uh, so they listened to the word of the Lord and they returned and did not go up to Jerusalem. That word returned is the word for repent. If you've meant, I've mentioned this before, but the essence of repentance is turning. It's not feeling bad. It's not weeping. Or, it's actually changing. It's turning from whatever path we were going on that was against God's will and turning back to God, to his design. And that word for return is that word to turn, to return. The idea is he's on his way to commit more folly, and God confronts him, and he acknowledges he's wrong, and he repents. And here's the amazing thing, guys. 
Rehoboam repents, and God forgives him, and then God shows him favor. So if you keep reading then verses 5 to 12, we're not going to read it, but it lists then Rehoboam's accomplishments. And this is showing that God then had favor on Rehoboam, the, an incredibly foolish king. I mean, what a mistake. I remember in about 2011 reading a story. This is when social media was just becoming mainstream, like Twitter, and so politicians were getting on it. It's even like, you know, companies were obviously getting on Twitter to connect with their customers better, even like city governments. And so there was a, uh, a guy who had been hired by the city of Detroit to start a Twitter account for them. And, uh, um, and apparently he's driving in Detroit, and something happens that makes him very angry. And so he gets on his phone to, uh, to tweet out his grievances, not realizing that he's still signed into the city of Detroit's Twitter account. And all of a sudden, on that morning, the city of Detroit tweets out an expletive-ridden tweet saying basically that Detroit drivers can't drive. In marketing, you make mistakes. But in marketing, there are some mistakes you can recover from, and there are some mistakes you can't recover from. And that's one you can't recover from. And the guy was fired from the project, fired from his marketing agency, and probably never did anything in marketing again. I mean, there's, just, there's some things you can't recover from. This is... the. The mistake that Rehoboam made, he split a country. He didn't just offend a city. He didn't just offend some people. He, he split a country. This is the equivalent of a guy running a business into the ground declaring bankruptcy. Like, there should not be a second chance. But when he turns to God, God not only forgives him, but he gives him a second chance. And not just a second chance, but God then blesses him. And it's funny, all of a sudden, Rehoboam, the great fool of a king, in verses 13 to 17, all of a sudden, he's becoming a refuge for those who seek after God. As Jeroboam, now the king in the north, begins to implement idolatry and, and, and bad practices, those who fear God begin to move south and find refuge in Rehoboam, of all people, in his kingdom. God is a God of justice, but he's also a God of grace. When we turn to him... There is no mistake that puts you outside of the grace of God. There is no mistake you could have made in your life that somehow makes you unable to be part of God's plan. It's like, nope, too much. No. Rehoboam split the nation of Israel. And yet when he turned to God in repentance, God forgave him. And God welcomed him back. Rehoboam was no David or Solomon. But the amazing thing is that God used him anyways to lead his people. God is a God of grace, and he can use even crooked sticks to draw straight lines. It's our first point, God of justice and God of grace to a foolish son, to the mistakes of Rehoboam. Now we're going to see God of justice and God of grace to a faithless son. And here we pick up in chapter 12. Now again, looking at, um, we'll read 12 verse 1. When the rule of Rehoboam was established and he was strong, he abandoned the law of the Lord and all Israel with him. It's funny, in, in 1117, it's, it's describing how all the people who feared God came to the southern kingdom, and it says they strengthened the kingdom of Judah, and for three years they made Rehoboam the son of Solomon secure. For they walked for three years in the way of David and Solomon. So for three years, Rehoboam walks in the way of David and Solomon, his father. And leads the people well and trusts in God and follows his law for three years. Until all of a sudden he's established and then he feels like he doesn't need God anymore. And he starts doing his own thing. 
And again, we see God is a God of justice. God, God had made what's called a conditional covenant with Israel, which means it's an agreement that was conditioned on some premises. And so the, the agreement was God would bless and care and protect Israel if Israel obeyed his law, the law that he gave them on Mount Sinai. If Israel disobeyed God, well, then God would not protect them and would likely uh, have them be conquered by foreign invaders. That was the conditional agreement God had made with Israel. And so in response to all of a sudden Rehoboam's not just foolishness, but now his unfaithfulness, again, we see that God is a God of justice. Look at verses 2 to 5. And in the fifth year of King Rehoboam, because they had been unfaithful to the Lord, Shishak, king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem with 1,200 chariots and 60,000 horsemen, and the people without number who came with him from Egypt, Libyans, Sukkim, Ethiopians. And he took the fortified cities of Judah, and he came as far as Jerusalem. Then Shemaiah the prophet came to Rehoboam and the princes of Judah, who had gathered at Jerusalem because of Shishak, and said to them, Thus says the Lord, You abandoned me, and so I have abandoned you to the hand of Shishak. God is a God of justice. What does that mean? He will always do what is right. Always even when it costs his own people whom he loves. He does not play favorites. God is, will always do what is right. But again, he is also a God of grace. Continue looking at verses 6 to 7. And then the princes of Israel and the king humbled themselves and said, The Lord is righteous. And when the Lord saw that they humbled themselves, the word of the Lord came to Shemaiah. They have humbled themselves. I will not destroy them. But I will grant some deliverance, and my wrath shall not be poured out on Jerusalem by the hand of Shishak. This is exactly what Solomon had prayed in his dedication prayer of the temple, which is a few chapters earlier. When the temple is completed and they're dedicating it, what Solomon asks for for the temple is this in 2 Chronicles 6, 24-25. If your people Israel are defeated before the enemy because they have sinned against you, it's exactly what's going on here. Israel had abandoned the law of the Lord, and so Shishak from Egypt has come. And they turn again and acknowledge your name and pray and plead with you in this house and hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them again to the land that you gave to them and to their fathers. Here's the problem. Rehoboam is a repeat offender. This ain't the first time he's had to turn in repentance to God. There's few things I hate doing more than standing someone up. Fortunately, I have not done it too many times, but I think we've all had that experience where we're supposed to get coffee or lunch or breakfast, and for whatever reason, we don't write it down or we're busy, and we just forget. And there's just, I, like, it, oh, I hate doing that. Just, you feel awful. And here's the thing. If I do that to you, and you give me another chance to get breakfast with you or lunch, like, I will make sure it doesn't happen again. Like, I will camp out at that restaurant. I'll put 20 notifications on my phone. I'll tell Marco to call me 10 minutes before, make sure I'm driving over. Like, I, I will get there early, and I will not do it a second time. And if I do it a second time, don't get coffee with me. I don't deserve another chance. That's the thing is, here's... Rehoboam had experienced amazing grace from God, grace he didn't deserve. He didn't deserve a second chance after that first mistake, but God gave it to him. He's a repeat offender, and yet here he is once again coming back saying, God, I'm sorry. And God forgives him. God forgives, I think when we, if we're honest with ourselves, we probably wouldn't. 
Because God is, yes, a God of justice, but he's also a God of grace. And we get tripped up on the justice part, but if we're really honest with our hearts, a lot of times we get tripped up on the grace part. That's the entire point of the, uh, of the prodigal son. It's not about the son who sins. It's about the older brother who's really upset that the younger son's forgiven. God is a God of grace. He forgives when we probably wouldn't. And it's amazing again. God doesn't just forgive, but he then prospers Rehoboam. Look at verse 12 in chapter 12. And when he humbled himself, the wrath of the Lord turned from him so as not to make a complete destruction. Moreover, conditions were good in Judah. Despite Rehoboam's failures, God chose grace. One of the upshots of God's grace is that he's one who uses crooked sticks to draw straight lines. He uses one even like Rehoboam to lead his people and care for his people and he prospers him. I really struggled with these chapters to try to figure out what to make of Rehoboam. Is he fundamentally a good king? Is he fundamentally a bad king? Because usually it's pretty obvious, right? Solomon and David, they're fundamentally good kings. Even in, even in First and Second Kings, which is a little bit more honest about their failures, they're still fundamentally good kings. It's like Rehoboam, like he makes all these mistakes. He splits the nation in half. But yet there's all these positive descriptions of God blessing him. And he humbles and repents. And there's no sense that these repentances are like not real or sincere. And I, I didn't know what to make of him. And so I realized the emphasis is not the stick. The emphasis is the God who can use crooked sticks to draw straight lines. That's the point of these stories. I had a small group leader in high school who was a world champion racquetball player. I'm in a picture of a racquetball court up there if you've never played racquetball. But it's basically a, a, a square room with two players. There's a rubber ball, and you, and you kind of hit it. It's like a mix of like tennis and ping pong and, I don't even know, and handball. It's a whole mix of stuff. So this, my, my small group leader, he was literally a world champion racquetball player. I guess there are like championships in this game. I don't know. And so he was very good. He would teach clinics. People would pay a lot of money to go to these clinics. And he would do a demonstration on the last day of the clinic. He would pick the guy who was probably the best, one in the best player in the clinic. And then he would beat him while using a Clorox bottle. If you don't know what Clorox bottles, put that up as well. It's a round bottle. And that's kind of how he would like, you know, because everyone's like, this guy's a world champion. We want to see him do his stuff. He's like, okay, I'm going to use a Clorox bottle. I'm going to beat your best guy. Now, here's the thing. No one after that example looks at the Clorox bottle and thinks, I got to get one of those. Like, that's how it happened. No, the whole point is, like, he is amazingly talented that he's beating a decent racquetball player using a Clorox bottle. Too often, though, we will look at the Clorox bottle and think, wow, how impressive that is. And we miss the fact that it's God who's the one that uses Clorox bottles to do amazing things. He uses incredibly crooked and broken and shattered sticks to draw very straight lines. And that's the point of these stories. Rehoboam is a crooked stick. He's a sinner saint just like all of us. But yet God uses him to lead his people and, and, and to draw incredibly straight lines regardless of the fact that Rehoboam in himself was no David, no Solomon. Rehoboam reminds us God is the actual important factor in all these things. And so I have, I have two parting thoughts for us as we can keep in mind this fact that God uses crooked sticks to draw straight lines. I have two parting thoughts for us. The first is that if you are a Christian, God has a ministry for you. And I don't mean the sense of necessarily in the sense of a like paid vocational ministry, maybe for some of you. Some of you. 
But for most, no. But God has a ministry for you, which means a way that he wants to use you to bless and strengthen the church and to advance his kingdom. Because the image of the church in the Bible draws on the human body. It draws on something that is interdependent. And so in the human body, is the eye more important than the ear? It's like, well, the body doesn't do well when it misses one or the other. They're both important. Is the eye more important than the foot? Well, if you don't have feet, it's hard to walk. Every part is interdependent. Every part is needed, has a role and a function to play. And you may feel like, well, I've made mistakes, or you don't know what I've done, or, 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 or maybe you think you're really the, the cheese when you're actually a broken, bent stick. I just want you to know, God has a ministry for you. And if you will, like Rehoboam, hear God and respond to him, and obey him, he will use you to draw straight lines that you can't imagine. And the beautiful thing is we have a church full of people who though we're bent in crooked sticks, absolutely, God is using us to draw straight lines. That's the first parting thoughts. God has a ministry for you, and he wants to use you, though you may be a crooked stick, though you are a crooked stick, you are a sinner saint, though I am a sinner saint. He wants to use us to draw straight lines. The second parting thought is that when you see those straight lines, Worship the creator, not the crooked stick. Be amazed at the one who could do that, not the Clorox bottle. Don't be impressed by people. Be impressed by God. And worship the God who is just and holy and righteous and yet graciously draws near and uses sinner saints like you and me for his purposes. Let's pray. Father, again, we come before you in trembling, knowing you're God of justice. But you also we come before you in hope, knowing that you're God of grace, who draws near to sinners like us, who uses the weak and the fallen and the broken to advance your very kingdom. Lord, may you do that through us. Help us to offer our lives to you without qualification every part of our hearts, every part of our lives, of our days, our jobs, our family. God, we want to give it all to you. And may we do it with a song on our, on our lips. Pray this in the name of your precious son, Jesus. Amen.